The Napa Know How Motorsport Academy is back, bigger than ever, in 2022. Led by supercar star Bryce Forward as the driver mentor, the Academy offers tuition to all racers aged 13 and up, giving insights into the world of racecraft and analysis, plus information on health, sponsorship and media. On top of the information you'll receive, you can win regular prizes and best of all, it's free to join. Get involved at the new Napa Motorsport Asia Pacific Facebook and Instagram pages or visit the Napa Australia or New Zealand websites to sign up and be part of know-how that is synonymous with Napa. Start your engines. This is the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racer Podcast. Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 14 of the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing podcast we thank everybody who continues to join us over 14 13 12 11 10 whatever many episodes or if you're just tuning in where have you been for the last 14 episodes we've got a fantastic uh, show on for you today and uh, we hope you're enjoying what we're doing i certainly am there's been plenty of racing going on down south we've got uh, plenty to chat about with uh, island magic and the closing off the victorian state circuit racing championships and uh, at that point, we'll switch uh, north of the border and we'll talk to a bloke that has been let out of the cage categorically over the last few weeks. First Bathurst Challenge and then off to Adelaide. My good mate and partner in crime here at the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast, Gary O'Brien. Welcome, Gaz. Thanks, Darren. It's great to be back again for another one of these uh, great challenges that we now given ourselves to uh, come up with some really good interviews, which we have so far. And we've got a good one tonight, which we'll get into shortly. But um, yeah, a lot been happening. Um, As you said, Adelaide just uh, back from there yesterday and well, earlier in this week. And uh, and, it's all been happening. Yeah, I'll tell you what, it's certainly been happening with you, hasn't it? The the, the gates were up for a while and you were... uh recording from from home and from Bathurst and here and there, but you've uh, jumped the border, you've headed west and uh, had a great time in Adelaide, had a great time uh, reporting for us um, in uh, the last episode from uh, Bathurst Challenge. So fantastic to see all that. And of course, we're doing it all for Napa Auto Parts and the Grassroots Racing Motorsport Academy. Check it all out at www.napaparts.com.au or NZ if you're uh, in New Zealand or indeed around the world, check out Napa Auto Parts. But certainly the uh, the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Academy is something that is for all races. It's a free service and certainly uh, getting people on board there and starting to get some good feedback from people. And uh, every now and again, Gaz bumping into someone who's uh, been in the academy and, um, and also around the racetrack that's been listening to our podcast. Yeah, and we're working on being uh, chaperones for whoever wins that prize to go to the Indy <laughs> Capitalist 500, aren't we? Yeah, well, it was interesting. Uh, the other one was the the grand annual down at Warnable where the you know the two rock stars are going to be running the Napa Colours. And uh, I put my hand up and said, yeah, look, I'll take the spot in the VIP suite with the <laughs> open bar and all that sort of thing. And we'll be uh, we'll be Napa celebrities. Haven't heard anything back. I don't yeah, know why. surprising, that. <laughs> yeah, haven't heard anything back. Well, let's now catch up with our great mates from Race Fuels who have been supporting us right throughout this year. Race Fuels is Australia's leading supplier of racing fuel to national and state-level motorsport. And its range of racing fuels includes the BP Supercars E85, which is available to grassroots races. For power and protection over pump fuel, Race Fuels imports the Elf Race 102, 
as used by Porsche Carrera Cup and the Touring Car Masters. More info on RaceFuel's E85 and ELF Race 102 is available at racefuel.com.au. Big thanks to RaceFuels for all of their support as well as the Napa Auto Parts. We've got a terrific guest tonight, a little one, a little bit out of left field. We've had some pretty big names and not saying this guy isn't a big name, but certainly um, testament to the grassroots kind of uh, style of operator. Gaz, um, really looking forward to this one. Yes, indeed. Son of an English car salesman from Hampshire in England and did his time paddock bashing around like most of us probably have. Our guest has done time in various workshops on performance cars, which subsequently led to race teams and ultimately to Australia. He was and still is well thought of out here, so much so he remains gainfully employed and has set up his own mechanical business attending to exotic machinery in and around Melbourne and anywhere else you want to bring him in from. He had a great friendship with the late Alan Simonson, among others, and ultimately jumped in the deep end to race his own radical race cars. Among many teams and drivers he has worked with, the latest has been with Mike Bailey and his two Bentleys at the Valo Adelaide 500. It was while prepping the GTs that we had a chance to let Phil Hughes tell us his story. Yeah, hi, uh, Darry, Dar- Darren and Gary. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's come as a bit of a surprise, but uh, yeah, happy to uh, listen to your questions and, and reveal some secrets and stories. No problem. That's awesome, Phil. Thank you for joining us. And you can refer to us as Daz and Gaz because that's what the Napa Grassroots podcast is all about. It's the, the the Gaz and Daz show or the Daz and Gaz show because Deeb comes before G, but I allow the Gary first because he's the more respected elder. <laughs> Indeed. And the way it should be. <laughs> Phil, um, you have a, um, for many years, your, I guess your automotive, motorsport, et cetera, career has intrigued me. Um Obviously, uh, now an expat uh, Englishman enjoying the uh, the lifestyle here in Australia. But being that we are grassroots, can you just give us an idea of the first time you went to a racetrack or the first time you saw a race car and the obvious uh, delight or infection you you encountered on that occasion that has kept you coming and coming and coming and coming to the racetrack? Well, yeah, thank you. You've always been interested in what I've been up to, Darren, and I appreciate that. Um I guess I was fairly late into motorsport, but I grew up around cars. My dad was a car salesman, sold particularly Volvos for years. So I was always around cars, had paddock bashes, you know, from an early age. But I didn't really get into motorsport until quite late. Um, even I started with Ferraris road cars in the 87 it was, I first started with Ferraris. And of course they naturally are performance cars. So we did track days. I grew up and lived half an hour's drive from Brands Hatch. So I was with Kent High Performance Cars for a long time. And every year we'd rent Brands Hatch and have a customer track day. So that got me to the racetrack, and, but it was just road cars and um, enjoyed it. We always had professional drivers around. And that's, that's where I remember one day there was an old instructor by the name of Les Ager and we hired him and he would come along and he would drive a normal, boring family sedan or state car wagon and give rides to all the Ferrari owners. And I went for a ride once and I just, it blew me away how this old boy, he was 70 back then in the 80s, and he was driving along 
one arm on the armrest of the, of, the, of the passenger, leaning around, facing backwards, talking to us while passing Ferraris that were doing their best at Brands Hatch. And that's the, the difference between a professional driver and your average punter in a very fast car. It, it, that, that really got, but okay, race drivers are something special. So that was a real eye-opener for me way back. Was that around the uh, the Nana Daisy era in Hampshire? Are we talking around that? <laughs> Nana Daisy was a thing. My my, my dad's mum was called Daisy. And uh, when I was at first passed my driving test, when I was very young, 17, you know, partly in England, you get 17, passed my driving test three months after my birthday. And my special treat was to take Nana Daisy home after the Sunday roast dinner. And she always loved that because... She'd have a couple of glasses of sherry for a start, but she loved to go fast, so she'd let me drive fast. Um, but also, because of the roast dinner and the songs of praise and the antiques roadshow and the glass of sherry and everything, she'd get a bit sleepy. So I've found a way of driving very quickly without waking up Nana Daisy, which was why I think I'm quite good in the wet now, because <laughs> you can't be smooth. <laughs> well, yes, you, I can attest to the fact that you... Uh... Well, I mean, as as you know, we'll get to that during during our chat. But you uh, certainly rose to the uh, the front of the grid and got yourself on TV by performing in the wet. So uh, there's something, Gaz. Next time we're calling a prototype race, we can refer to Nana Daisy in the Nana uh, Daisy. the black car this, with this the day, tricolor. I've only I've only won four races, and they've all been with wet tyres fitted. Yeah, well, <laughs> we, we, one of six out in mind, particularly is that Sandown one at the Shannon's Nationals. That was one of the better ones. Yes, yeah, that was a fun one because that was my first win and, and I'd, I'd been really struggling. The car, would be, I'd lost second gear completely. I had to start off in first and just shift, double shift through second to get the third because second was dead. And I was 11th on the starting grid and uh, there was Peter Patton in the race, you know, and he was the radical champion, multi-champion, I think, and he was the benchmark by which we all judged ourselves. And, and uh, yeah, I'd caught and passed him on that very last lap, last corner. Uh, for my first ever win, that was very satisfying. Yeah. And that was in the SR3, of course, not the SR8 that you currently have. That's right. Yeah, that was the old SR3, yeah. In, about a, foot, in to... about a foot of water on the main straight of oh, it was It was very crazy. Deep. You couldn't see. The water was just streaming in all around the car. That particular car, my SR3, didn't have, most of them have a foot panel, like a, a cover down in the pedal area to stop the water that comes off the front wheels. But my car didn't have that. So it was just like my feet were like in a shower, you know, it was, <laughs> I was swimming in two inches of water inside. It was just like dropping Nana Daisy off on a wet afternoon, <laughs> yeah. hey? Yeah, I thought of it. Yeah, <laughs> let's get back to um, back to England and where you progressed from your first experience with a professional racing car driver. Where did you go from there? Yeah, well, so I did the Ferrari thing. So the Ferrari road cars, it was Kent High Performance cars, which was in Kent near where I grew up. And then after a little while, I went on my own solo, did some Ferrari work. But then one time I was working with my cousin, David, and we were doing the odd Ferrari, a few road cars and things. And a job came up advertised in Autosport magazine uh, for a mechanic at DK Engineering. And they're a very highly regarded uh, specialist in uh, the northwest of London area, doing all the historic, mainly Ferraris, really, really high end stuff. And uh, so... I'd, I was, I'd been self-employed for a few years already, so I didn't want to be employed by them. And I contacted them and said, look, I can think I can fill your role, but I want to be a contractor, not an employee. So they took me on and it was a bit of a risk for them and a risk for me. And it meant I had to travel and rent a room elsewhere. But they did 
obviously the highest end of all the Ferrari road and race cars, but um, they at the time there was what was called the Shell Historic Race Series. And uh, there was two classes, disc brakes and drum brakes. And uh, so DK prepared cars for both of those categories, those those classes. And we had just the highest end stuff. Well, I remember we had a, we, we used a six car truck and uh, we put in it like, you know, two or three 250 GDO short wheelbases, 250 Testarossas. There would be half a billion pounds worth of cars in that truck nowadays. And we raced these cars with gay abandon, for abuse of a better word, want of a better word, but they car, the cars got raced properly and they were genuine cars, not some of this stuff you see nowadays at Goodwood. They were proper cars. And um, so that the racing though was done by uh, not, not just gentlemen drivers mostly, but then the Goodwood event started, what's now Goodwood Revival was brand new in 98. And that's when I was at DK. And so we ran a 250 GTO at Goodwood the first time with Stefan Johansson. And so I got to work on that car uh, with Stefan Johansson. And we'd done some testing stuff with Manuel Piro as well. So I got to meet for my first time, really, some proper race drivers that have done really high level stuff. And it's just next level, the way these guys can turn up and just get straight in first, first session, they're straight on the pace, they're immediately into tuning and setting up the car and, and understanding their opponents and predicting the weather and way to, which way to go. It just, just, it was next level for me. So, and that really became a thing like, wow, this is, you know, I love the cars, but these professional drivers, there's something else. So that was 98, 99. I did the two years at Goodwood, the first two years. Tell us just briefly, Phil, the joy or the agony involved on working on a 250. It's all joy uh, when, it, when it's not your risk. You know, you obviously, you, you have all care, but no responsibility. So these cars, even back then in the late 90s, they were worth, you know, a million, two or two pounds, but nothing like they are now. But they're just nuts and bolts. They're just bits of metal. And we raced them and we crashed them and we bashed them. Uh, but the facilities and the guys around me at DK Engineering, we could do anything. There was a, a whole core of people there, about eight or 10 mechanics. And every one of them is an absolute legend in their field and there's guys that could fabricate anything you could have possibly imagined if you couldn't buy it you could we could make it and so we raced these cars i remember once we smashed up it was carlos monteverdi and he smashed up a 250 testarossa into a 250 short wheelbase like amazing amount of dollars worth of cars two of dk's customers yeah yeah, yeah that's right um but we had the we got the 250 Testarossa was the one that had most damage, and we got it back to the workshop. We stripped it down to a shell, sent the shell off to the body guy, repaired all the mechanicals while the shell was away. Got it back. It was like two weeks later. Got it back. Worked all through the night. Put it back together and raced it. Three whatever it was, three or four weeks later, we basically reshelled this car from a massive crash, and a, the team of people all working together was just amazing. It was this, this almost like a Japanese just-in-time efficiency. And we were working on cars back then that were 50 years old. Now they're, you know, 60, 70 years old. So the, um, the instance of BMW um, restorations, was that before DK or did that come after that? Oh, that's one of my notes. Yeah, BMW was much later. Um, my dad had a fishing friend and he started a little BMW business. And uh, in his early days, he was hard up for stuff. And when I was working alone, I'd left Kenna Performance at the time, was working solo. Had some Ferrari work here and there. They helped a few people. I was basically mobile. And uh, yeah, I, and I, I wasn't particularly interested from the description of going to help a guy do BMWs, but I did. I got stuck in and there was a, a little a little shop 
that I helped and uh, we did some 2002s, a couple of CSLs and some really cool old Beamers and sort of, you know, I was interested. I became interested having not thought I would be. So that's my one minor diversion from Ferraris, I suppose. And was that was that race cars or were they? No, uh, it was mainly just road cars, classic collectibles. Yeah, there was a couple of race cars that came through, but we didn't go racing with them. They were just prep jobs. So, the the journey obviously through your earlier days as a motor mechanic, you've obviously done an, an apprenticeship and you've you've done some time learning learning your, your skills with at DK etc. Would you say you were a happy bloke living in the UK, just going about your your automotive restorations and racing, or was there something else ticking away? Going, uh, look, I got to head down to the antiquities here. <laughs> well, I was look, I was you know any mechanic I think is probably a frustrated racing driver. We, every, <laughs> anyone anyone that loves cars would want to race them if you could afford to. I was kind of lucky. My dad always had a part exchange coming in. We got all kinds of beaten up wrecks that came in for tuppence that dad had traded and we could take them down. So we got some lovely family that lived down in Hampshire. And it was about an hour and a half drive away, but we'd drive, if you could, this beaten up old wreck that dad had part exchanged down to the to the farm uh, in Hampshire. This is from, I think it was, I was 12 years old when we first started doing it for three or four years. And so just paddock bombs down on the, in, in the, in the, in, there's a, we had a big concrete road, which was like a drag strip. And at the end, there was a big field with the hay bales in there. So we'd race down the concrete strip and then just race around the hay bale, bashing and crashing. And we, I had an old Renault 12. We had a, uh, a, 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 a Sunbeam Rapier. We had a Peugeot 504, just all old bangers and just rubbish. A Triumph uh, 2000, I think it was. Some old of bangers. Be worth money now. Just get around on muddy grass and crash into stuff. Some of those be worth money now. Oh, it's criminal what we did. It's absolutely criminal. The only reason I stopped racing the Renault 12 was it got bashed so hard in the back that the fuel filler was on the back next to the number plate and you couldn't get any more fuel in it because it was all smashed in and mangled. <laughs> so that one had to get parked. And who knew in years to come you had you developed the skill to remodify that filler and you could have kept using that car. That's right, yeah. Well, then the goats ate the interior, so that was kind of the end of it. <laughs> goats ate the, the interior. <laughs> and what would the rapier be worth now? Oh, so something rapier. That would be worth huge money now. They're really collectible. Yeah, there's not many it. of them around. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the um, the reference earlier on, probably five minutes ago, that you referred to uh, burning around with um, with gay abandon in a Ferrari 250 GT. I think we need to get, you know, like some um, um, the spy that shagged me music behind that as he's saying that in our podcast <laughs> with a bit, of, a bit of Mike Myers behind that. We'll, we'll work that one out as well. We so listen, really... listen out for that. Did some really fun stuff at DK. Um, I don't know if you follow your old Ferrari history. The Ferrari Daytona is called the Daytona because it won multiple the Daytona victories. And we looked after at one stage three of the uh, Le Mans spec Daytonas. And we were getting them ready for a race. I think it was in Dijon in France, but it was definitely France somewhere and it wasn't Le Mans. Um, but anyway, we had a late night to get the car ready. And I'm not going to say his name because it, it's probably still illegal now, but we got a car ready late and we went for a burn around the M25 motorway uh, that is, uh, you know, a big loop. I don't know if you know that, but there's a big loop, loop M25. And there used to be a, a club called the Midnight Club and they'd meet up and we'd, and we'd race around the M25. And we did that one night in this Thompson Daytona Le Mans car. <laughs> in, uh, just Which there's only three of, so you're only going to take a choice of one. To. It's crazy. <laughs> That's the front engine Ferrari, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So would you, su- you suggest that your time at DK cemented your now, I'm going to say, enthusiasm for looking after Ferraris and making sure that the ones that you wave your magic wand across leave your presence in the better position than what they arrived in your presence in? Karen, look, so Ferraris was definitely my passion well before DK. It's the reason I went to DK. But DK was the trigger for the racing, for thinking, you know what, there's actually more to Ferraris than track days and coffee strips. We want to go racing. And there are people out there, they're rare and few and far between, but there are people out there that can afford to race really valuable, really collectible special cars at a high end. And DK was my trigger for that. It was only, I was only there for a bit over two years, but it was a real trigger point for the, the concentration of skills around me there. I learned so much in those two years from the DK experience that really set me up for today, really. So where have you gone from there? Once you got out of DK, what was the next, where were you, where was the move to sort of looking what you're going to do after that point and move so, yeah, to Australia? So the trigger was, so uh, a well-known Melbourneite, Jeff Dutton, who, you know, was Hamilton's Porsche and then Dutton's. And so Jeff came over with another Australian from Sydney, Warwick Miller. They came over to England to, and to use DK Engineering to support two historic Porsches on the Tour Auto, which was normally a, a rally around France. But in the 99 year, it was a centenary. And so it went all around the rest of Europe too. We went to Spa, we went to Nürburgring and we did a massive tour. And I was looking after Jeff and Warwick in their historic Porsche. So I, I do do Porsches too, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> um, and Jeff and I got on so well. We just clicked and we had an absolute blast and the cars ran pretty well, but we had some excitement as well. And the end of that, the upshot of that was Jeff said, uh, why don't you come out and do the Dutton Grand Prix Rally for us next year? You know, this was this, this was in 99. So that was, he invited me to come and do the 2000 Dutton Grand Prix Rally. And uh, I'd been at DK for two years, which was supposed to be three months, turned into two years. And I'd been renting a room and uh, up in Watford and another house down in Kent because I'd sold my house by then. And uh, it was all getting a bit much. And I was with, uh, who's now my wife, Claire, and uh, we sort of said, you know what, I've got an invite to go to Australia and do a couple of weeks of work. But I kind of feel like I've been at DK long enough. Let's let's rip up the... Uh, up." up boost the, the invite from Jeff and we'll turn it into a year out. We'll take a year out of England. We'll go to Australia. We'll travel the world and the rest of the world. And uh, then we we'll go back to England, sit down, get married and do all that. That was kind of the plan. Um, but then when I got to Australia uh, and met Jeff, first of all, the Dutton Grand Prix rally got cancelled late notice, but Jeff still honoured his invite and flew me out and put me up at the new Prince in St Kilda and gave me some money. And uh, just had the best time hanging out and basically partying at the Grand Prix with Jeff and all these contacts that he hooked me up with. And uh, that's where I then met um, Mark Coffey and Tony Raftis, who I'd known their names because they'd been buying cars out of DK Engineering, high-end stuff, F40s, F50s, all the big car stuff. And I'd preparing the cars, but in DK, you don't get to talk to the customers, you know, as a mechanic, you're just in shop preparing the car and so i've arrived at the grand prix in 2000 and i've seen in the display tent there there was an f50 and i said to claire oh there's an f50 looks just like the one i just worked on and went over to it and i said this is the one i've just worked on i've just done all the engine and gearbox on this thing and it was tony raftis and uh, so we we got chatting as just casuals I, they, they didn't know who i was and i didn't know who they were but we just got chatting about this car i just worked on and 
two and two uh, became an invite to join the race team that they were just starting. It was very early days in the in the PHR experience, wasn't it? When uh, when that they hadn't started, started yet, they literally just about to take delivery of the first three hundred and sixty challenge car. Yeah, we got it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Claire said, "All right, Phil, I trust your judgment. We'll stay in Australia. We've, we've got no work. We've got nothing coming along. You're going to race for a new race team, and and that's what you did." It would be nice to say that, but it's not quite her words. <laughs> no, Claire's got very good skills. She's in the IT world, and uh, it was actually every bit as much her doing. She, she's got some really special skills that were quite desirable, and she could find work in Melbourne, Sydney, wherever. And we actually had quite a dilemma working out where should we settle because Claire's got great work in either, and then uh, the car scene was pretty good in either. So we both had equal opportunities that were all great. We, we couldn't believe our luck. We literally landed on our feet. Yeah? So picking Melbourne is obviously a little bit more like home than what Sydney would be. Yeah, it rains a lot. So that's felt <laughs> it has been the last month or so, <laughs> especially lately. <laughs> Oh, that's the whole country at the moment. Yeah. It is. It is. So Prancing Horse Racing took off the, the 360, the challenge car, and then just the the success. And I guess that GT world, the Nations Cup world, just really flourished rapidly in those first, you know, from 2000 through to 2004 with with some some great competitors, a questionable um, parody system, and uh, and and awesome characters right through that early period, wasn't it? It was again. It was like I said already that the, the two years I spent at DK, I learned so much in those two years. It blows my mind. I learned a lot at Kennel Performance and other places too. But the, the the core people at DK was great. But then that prancing horse experience. It started off tiny. I was basically one of the first person they even spoke to. And then they, of course, they got Paul Cruikshank in, and then he had a good friend, uh, uh, mechanic Hayden Weber. I think he's still around. I think he's at McElroy's now. Um, but anyway, Paul and Hayden and I were really the first um, guys to be the Prancing Horse team. And then, it, but it grew so quickly, and the people we brought in so smart. There's the engineers, and I still spoke to him just the other day. Ralph Bellamy came on board, and a guy called Ian Brown, and. With James Martin, and he's a young engineer, and we had all these amazing engineering brains that were being subcontracted in. And then we had uh, uh, we had Christian Jones, who of course son of Alan Jones. So we had Alan Jones, a Formula One world champion, was drafted in, and these incredible people that I knew so much about that we got involved with and started working with. It was such a, a feast of information coming in rapidly. Ralph Bellamy is massively respected uh, engineer. He was at, actually he was at the Bend um, uh, the last yeah, time last time you were yeah. over there. He was um, I think he's working with one of the Porsche teams as well. And uh, that's a good note, Gaz. We should try and track Ralph Bellamy down. Um, well, he's, he's also done the aero work on D Ty's uh, Delara with the Judd V8 in it for the the hill climb stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And well, it was super, it became the Super Sprint champion this year. With that car, he's, um, he's not using any hill climbs at the moment, but he's certainly using super sprints. With the um, with the pro car side of things, uh, Phil, that was when I first sort of I think I was first when I first met you was during pro car when in the black garage with the Lamborghini we had all the riffraff from the outer eastern suburbs, and then in the in the red garage next door with uh, Sam Newman who ended up driving the Lambos and. Uh, 
Bowie and 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 all these um, big names that that were through there, Mark Noski, Craig Baird, and um, McConville, all these drivers that you got to work with, as well as the engineering people. The I guess your respect for Australian motor motorsport grew pretty grew pretty quickly. Absolutely. I mean, I, I won't try and pretend I knew much about Australian motorsport before I got here, but learned so much so quickly and a massive respect for Kiwis as well. The pricing horse was with Crookshank and Hayden are both Kiwis. They brought in more Kiwis as well. And then what I thought was a backwater out in the middle of nowhere, I couldn't believe the amount of skills and knowledge and experience that so many people had. Crookshank had been at uh, West Surrey Racing for a long time. So he'd been in England to do um, Dick Bennett over there, taught him a lot. So, uh, you know, we, we really clicked as a team and, I can't believe some of the stuff that we achieved with the time given and the resources available. It was a pretty amazing time to be around. It was interesting that that era of Nations Cup, there was some big money vehicles with quite a shallow pool of money behind them, wasn't it? It was, uh, <laughs> it was surely those, those, those Pirellis are going to do another lap, aren't they? They're going to have to. <laughs> they were, I don't remember the Pirellis being a problem back then. They've really suffered lately, haven't they? Formula One and the rally scene is a mess at the moment. But back then, uh, the Pirelli was a good tyre. I mean, nobody had a problem with it at all. Um, it was a bit of, and then there was a bit of development, though. I remember there being some angst between... So there was Christian Jones, who I actually ran mostly, and then there was Mark Noski in the main car. When we were a smaller team, just two or three cars, there was basically Mark Noski and Christian. And um, But Mark was obviously the favoured driver because Tony Noski was part of the team ownership structure and Tom Warwick was funding Christian's drive, um, but of course he was friends with Alan. So Alan Jones would come along and he'd be in Christian's ear saying, you're not sort of a world champion, you've got to do this, that and the other. And then Tom Warwick would go, <laughs> don't you back car don't you scratch my car um, <laughs> and so that was always a, a compromise but then then something would happen like uh, Pirelli would come out with a slightly wider tire or a different compound because Mark would get that first and then that would upset Tom and Alan and Christian and so, so there was I learned about what happens within a multi-car team then that was new to me because I've done the one car for a bit and now we're two car teams and there's a little bit of inter-team inter rivalry going on with big egos around you know well that's always the case isn't it yeah when you got that yeah well, it's it's, that was new to me then i'd not I, the dk race team we'd had multiple cars but everyone they're just gentlemen they weren't professional races <laughs> it was a different vibe but prancing horse was very yeah professional it was about winning races prancing horse in that that nation's cup era wasn't it, it was yeah. about being yeah. on on pole position and and winning races some of the, I just mentioned some of the pros that have, you know, gone on with massive longevity. John Bauer, for example, you know, Cameron Conville still doing laps, both of them in touring car masters, um, various other drivers, as well as um, uh, your great mate, Alan Simonson. At what stage was Alan starting to evolve within that outfit? So Alan came around, the prancing horse thing grew and grew and grew. And Tony Raftis was a massive Ferrari fan. And he bought the Michael Schumacher uh, Formula One car, the 97 car. Can you see that on my wall behind me? There's a picture up there. That's the 97 car. Mm. On the that, wall. That, it works well on an all audio podcast, Phil. Uh, well, you can you can see it. Anyway, so the 90s, it, it was a massive turning point. I, I'd never really worked on any open wheeler cars at all. The first open wheeler racing car I ever worked on was Michael Schumacher's Formula One Ferrari. I'll stand down. He's up, Tiger. <laughs> so, Guys working on Formula Vs and Formula Fords for 30 never, years before they get to do that. Wouldn't know one end from the other. 
but straight into a 97 Formula One Ferrari. And uh, so that car came around and we had a lot of fun with that. We took it to, when we first got it, we took it to Calder Park Short Track and did a media day. Mark Nossi got to drive it around. He'd done a day at Fiorano testing before we got it. But anyway, when the car arrived in Australia, we only really drove it this one time. We went to Calder Park Short Track, we did it like a media day. Um, and that went really well. Everyone loved it. And uh, then we took it to a few tracks for shows and things. And we had this special truck built with the gullwing doors and it was all, it was all, all glitz and glamour. Um, and we did, a, we, we did a thing out at Ballarat Town Centre, which was a dismal failure. The, thing, the car ultimately uh, died on us. We, they prepared the town centre for us to do a parade of the Formula One car around Ballarat because we'd had the trucks built there. So it was a big Bramarco truck to show the car off. Cordoned off the street, police everywhere, crowd, and uh, I fired the car up. Noski was in the car, and I fired it up. And we first of all, we started it maybe half an hour before we were going to do the run and just made some noise with it, got the crowd around. So off, and then near the showtime, fired it up again. And as it started up, it's burst into life, and it's just gone and just puked a lake of oil. Like it was a three-metre <laughs> diameter lake of oil. And it's just all around the tyres, all around the feet. And it, the car, obviously, something had broken in the oil pump. And then on the day, we just packed it up and went away with our tail between our legs, very embarrassed. But we got it back to the factory. And I, I took it apart. I worked out what was wrong with it. It sucked up some random stray nut out of the engine and pumped it out of the oil pump, burst a hole in the side of the oil pump. So I've taken photographs of it and written a bit of a report and sent it to our contact at the Ferrari factory who exploded like you would not believe the response we got what the hell are you doing to our car you can't touch our car you just do tires and fuel don't what do you think you're doing well tony raftis was never one to take a step back and he went back at ferrari with three barrels and it just you know juggernaut's head on so that all turned to dust and uh we ended up packing up the car and getting rid of it. And Tony Rafty said, that's it, sell the bloody thing, don't want it anymore, sell it. So we used a broker to help sell the car, uh, Andrew Turner, who lives in Queensland now, is a former English expat as well, part of the Ferrari world. And Alan knew, uh, sorry, uh, Andrew Turner knew Alan through, uh, I think it was John Collins, a couple of other people. Anyway, Andrew had these connections to Alan as an up and coming race driver. And Andrew very, very generously said, right, my fee for selling the Ferrari is you must put Alan in one of your 360s at the Grand Prix. This was 2004, was it? Five? I don't remember now. It's all foggy. But anyway, so Alan McCain was a, basically a broker fee. That's, that was our deal. We had to put him in the car for the Grand Prix and I got to work with him. Before we move on from the Ferrari F1 car, there was a Mark Webber sort of connection somewhere along the way there too, yeah. wasn't there? Yeah, that, that's probably... the a little bit of dirt you can or can't put to air. Everyone loves Mark Webber. All the Aussies love Mark Webber. But I didn't know him from Adam, and I judge people on who they are and how they act around me. And um, we did with the F1 car, we were doing the Australian Grand Prix launch function party, whatever it was. We had to take the car along, and there's a crowd gathered the other side of the curtain, and we were to start the car up and just push it. We are not to drive it, oh, H&S. So we had to start the car up. It could be running, but it couldn't be in gear push it through these curtains, smoke and fireworks and lights and stuff, party time. So we had to do a day of rehearsal. So we had to go to this thing and Mark Webb was there backstage with us because he was part of it. This was in the Minardi year, whatever year that was. Um, so um, 
Mark Webber was backstage with us and we were doing our thing and he was doing his thing. And then well, we, we didn't have a lot of interaction, but there was downtime that we got to chat. Oh, Mark Webber, go and say hello. And I don't know what was going on with him, but he must have been having a bad day. But he was the grumpiest, most miserable bugger you ever <laughs> did meet. Didn't have time for anyone. Treated us all as if we were filth. And so well, that's the opinion that I formed of Mark Webber. And Mark Noski didn't like him a little bit because they'd raced in Formula Holden. And uh, Mark said, I'll beat him most times anyway. Greg Murphy beats him. Jason Bright beats him. Everybody meets Mark. <laughs> so... There was that going on. So my my one and only opinion and experience of Mark Webber is a negative one because he was a grumpy old git when we were trying to do this F1 show, which ultimately was a disaster as well. And he Webber got the laugh because we'd done rehearsal all day and that had all gone well. And come showtime, again, throw in this habit, come showtime, I've gone to start the, the F1 car up, put the starter motor up the back of the gearbox and the battery pack had died and it just went click, 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 nothing happened. <laughs> and we pushed it through in silence to a complete wet weekend. A bit of Steppenwolf born to be wild turned up loud. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, there you go. So that was um, leading into the, the Alan Simonson era, which was, you know, I, for both you and Alan, I guess, personally together was a, a golden era of racing for the two of you. We had a lot of laughs. Alan came out, you know, I was a bit of a foreigner still, you know, the, the Aussies are a bit slow accepting us English and I get that, I don't mind. Alan was the same and he spoke in a funny accent. So Alan and I sort of clicked because we're both, you know, uh, third wheels, if you like. And uh, we just got along. I understood his pigeon English and I helped him improve it and not in all the right ways. And uh, we just, we established a rapport and I could make the car do what he wanted. And he appreciated that. And uh, he was a really clean racer. He hardly ever damaged the car, which was made our work easier. The amount of time we spent fixing crash damage in stupid uh, daylight, you know, daytimes. Uh, Alan didn't do that. He hardly ever scratched the car. And it was it got easier with Alan around. And he was obviously super fast as well. And he just had this knack of just pinching positions and doing lap times. And everyone, everyone fell in love with Alan. He was just amazing, yeah. I remember him um, in the Cooper's Ale Daytona at Adelaide in a couple of the races there. He was, I think one, he came from the back, didn't he? Um, I mean, we had some experiences, yeah, the, the, the 550. I've actually got that car in my workshop right now. Ultimately, okay. it, got, it got sold to, to a team in China who sent it back to me for some service work. And we're in the, in the process of doing that. But, yeah, that car, it started off green. Uh, it was the Olive Garden car, um, and uh, yeah, we raced that in Adelaide, and uh, uh, where else? The Sandown, we raced that, and uh, just had some amazing times with that. That car was a, basically a GD1 car, you know. It was we every, we all played the parody game with Pro Car. It was everyone was fudging, and there was the Ross Palmer, the online forum <laughs> stuff was just hilarious for years, <laughs> and everyone would fudge their reasonings and the paperwork, and then there was the whole. Mosler thing, and then there's the bloody Gary Rogers Monaro thing, and it all just <laughs> we thought, well, we're going to play that game. We're going to buy a proper car and screw you all, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but in going on, Alan as well, that uh, I have not heard anyone say a bad word about Alan in the whole time that I I've met him a few times, and he always addressed me by my Christian name. We only even after the first time we ever met, I just felt he was just a wonderful guy. Alan, Alan had a switch. He was he was the consummate professional. When he was speaking to anyone in the motoring industry, 
he was the professional. He was bloody hard-nosed. He often upset people at driver's briefings and things like that. But get him out, get him drunk. He was a different beast. He wasn't everyone's favourite then. <laughs> oh, okay. So I wasn't even privy to a lot of them. And I, and I heard some and I was there for some. And, uh, yeah, they're not coming out. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, so you're that, not going to put the dirt on Alan? There's no, no, no it's not going to put the dirt on That goes to the grave, though. So, so there's another association, of course, Benny as well, um, brother of as well, that uh, you had a little bit to do with as well. Yeah, that was really emotional. Once Alan passed after the Le Mans, um, you know, there was a, just a massive hole in so many people's lives. And um, Alan had always been pushing his younger brother, Benny. He said, bring Benny out. be faster than me. Benny's awesome, you know. Absolutely thought the world of Benny and everyone's going, yeah, yeah, Alan, you're, you're good enough. Alan. We've, we've got enough Simonsons around, you know. And I did, I think Benny did come out way back early on, early days when Alan first came. So I think I met him as a, as a youngster, but didn't have a lot to do with him. Alan had an older brother too, John, um, who was the next of kin contact. So if anything ever happened to Alan, John was the contact, not Benny. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, Benny ultimately, once, once Alan passed, and I got chatting to Benny and the, the family because I owned the Radical by then with Alan. So I had to sort of, well, I've got this loose end now. What do I do? So I got in touch more with the family and the whole Benny thing kicked off more. And um, then that led to, uh, I was working by then with uh, Tony DeFelice in the Vicious Rumour car and we needed a driver for that. And so I said, can we put Benny in? And uh, is his emotional stupid, isn't it? Mm. That's not stupid at all, mate. It's uh, you pour your heart and soul as a as an engineer and a mechanic into into these people, and uh, it can be a cruel sport on any given day. And uh, uh, these these things, you know, that's what you that's what you're experiencing right now is that it's just come to come to that emotion. Let's let's close the door on the the whole being a mechanic, Phil Hughes, and. And let's move into the the, um, the supercar services side of things. And just before you do, as as that era came to a close, what was your single most proudest moment at the racetrack? Oh, just getting the 360 GTs done and built at Michelotto was probably a huge one. The challenge cars went through a phase that we developed them as much as we could. Uh, but then the whole NGT thing started growing. And so I, I was very fortunate. I went to Michelotto to build the 360 GT cars. We actually ended up getting four built. I did two of them. Um, and so you go to Michelotto as an experience. You go for two, three, four weeks uh, to be trained and to actually build the cars you're going to race. And you go to Fiorano and test them. So it was so satisfying to get involved with the Michelotto team. And uh, and then the, we came out and we put, the, we put Ryan Briscoe. Do you remember Ryan Briscoe drove the 360 GT at the Grand Prix and crashed it heavily? Um, uh, that was such an amazing time. Very satisfying, though, to build the cars, race the cars, crash the cars, and then we fixed the car and we sold the car to, do you remember Sam Lee and the Velox team in the UK? They bought the car. We had to repair it after the Grand Prix crash in record time to ship it to Velox and did an amazing series of stuff back then. Um, and then I've repeated this experience with DeFelice and the 458 GD3s. We did two of those separate years. Uh, and that with the whole Benny thing as well, testing and all that was just a hoop. That that was yeah, just to to do. That's the absolute the highest level you can get in the Ferrari world is I think is the Michelotto realm of cars. That almost every Ferrari you've ever seen that's a race car 
is a Michelotto car other than a Formula One car. They did all the triple threes. They, they've just done so much. The Lancia Stratus they started with, but so many things. You know, there's very, very few cars that Ferrari are race cars that weren't Michelotto input. Delara that works with them in the carbon tubs and things. Absolute cream of the crop, you know. And that for me as a Ferrari enthusiast was the most satisfying. All right, let's close the door on Phil Hughes, the mechanic, the engineer, the the mover from one side of the world and dragging Claire with him. And uh, you've been in Australia a fair time now. You touched yes. on the fact that you and Alan were going to, you, you had, he owned half a radical with you. Um, and I guess this was where particularly Gary and I, with our involvement with prototypes, where we went, Phil Hughes is now thinks he's going to race a car. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this will be fun. <laughs> it's a little bit loose as a mechanic. This is yeah. going to be interesting. See if he can channel his thoughts and concentrate on this. And um, yeah, so you said you, you touched on it and there was some ownership with the, the Radical. Ultimately, you did a, a good few seasons in that um, a couple of different liveries, like a technical circuitry livery on it. And then yeah, I'm going to say the, the, TDK, the TDK M1, you know, type of, type yeah, of livery. Yeah. What was it that you went one day? No, I'm going to do this. I remember racing a Renault 12 down a concrete patch around a couple of hay bales. <laughs> and we're yeah. going to go, I'm going to actually do this properly now. Well, it, it was Alan, you know, so the, the, Alan and I had been chatting for ages. Um, he'd earned reasonable money as a professional driver. He spent years travelling. We kept it a joke. He's always got a seatbelt on, whether he's in an aeroplane or a racing car. And he, he earned some money and he had a bit of spare money. And we, we said, look, let's do something together. So uh, and I, I thought about it, what's, what's to do? And I said, well, Radicals looks like a reasonable thing. We can buy them fairly cheaply. I can prep and run it and we can do some racing together for a bit of a, a giggle, you know. And uh, he knew people all around the world. And he actually came back almost immediately. He said, oh, I found there's a, there's a, there's a radical at Radical Denmark, which have gone bankrupt. And the tyre supplier has taken the car as a security against an unpaid bill on tyres. And it could be bought quite cheaply as an asset disposal. And so I sent Alan, I said to Alan, let's, let's do it. I said, I've got half the money. You, you've, got, you've got half the money. Let's, let's buy the car. So Alan went to Radical Denmark to go and check the car out. Unfortunately, it was bloody February. He's gone there and there's an inch of snow on the track. And so he couldn't actually check the car over beyond looking at it in the workshop. So it was, he started up and ran it and had a listen and a look and poke around. And it was a nice car. It had only done eight or 10 hours and it had never been damaged. And it was a nice car, not much to say about it. So, uh, but he couldn't track test it. So I said, right, well, it's, it was cheap enough. I said, let's, let's roll the dice and buy it. So we did. So I then arranged all the shipping and brought it out and uh, got it through the customs and got it here and then uh, prepped it all, went to drive it, and the bloody gearbox was all smashed. <laughs> so <laughs> it didn't even get out of the workshop. I go, oh, well, it's not a great start. So, of course, it's a, not a five-minute fix. I'm like, as it's part of, the gear, part of the engine casing, so engine out, strip it all down. So I said to Adam, oh, bloody thing's got a busted gearbox, but it, it, I didn't care. It, the parts are cheap, and the labour was all, all in-house, and uh, we'd got it cheap enough. It still didn't matter because we'd basically stolen it. And... Um, uh, so we had to fix it all. And then the plan was for Alan to come out and I was going to do a track day first, a test day, but I didn't have a race license at that point. And so I said, well, we'll get it already. And then Alan will come and race it. Well, and then, but we never got that far because um, that was in the February. And then by the time the June all came around, uh, Alan, Alan got to the mills and didn't get out of the mills. So you decided to put it in a trailer and go and get your license and, and become 
Phil Hughes, the race car driver, and yeah, I've said it. That's right. I've said that on air many, many times, and it gives yeah. me great joy every time I do it. I go, look at this guy; he still thinks he's a race car driver. Yeah. And Gaz touched on it in the opening remarks when we started talking about you. That that time at Sandown in the rain, where basically, I think if it had happened in 2022 at Tail and Bend, they would have just said, "No, we're not racing today," and that's yeah. what happened. But at Sandown, what 2016, I think it was. We did. We raced. 17, actually. But yeah, whatever, yeah. And tell us about that, rolling out to the, you know, all of a sudden putting on a helmet and driving suit and becoming the race driver that you told down the radio, many guys and coached them through their their emotional phases and their their anger and all that. All of a sudden, your inner voice is talking to your inner voice. Well, exactly right. So I'm, I've, I had to flip from being basically someone that's paid to be a know-it-all to now do the thing that I know everything about <laughs> and so you've got a bit of pressure on yourself you know? <laughs> like, I've now got to do what I would tell what would I tell myself to do and uh, now I've got to do that and uh, now I, I, know, I know I can drive I've driven very special cars all my life so, Renault 12s into the paddocks Ferraris for 30 years by this point already so I've driven some pretty special amazing very high powered cars in bad condition done all that driving the car wasn't the issue but it's just that i'm now on track with these some of these guys are actually pros now some of them aren't but i, I I'm, I'm now i am now driving and I've, I've got to try and pass that guy and uh, and I, I like that i'm not interested in doing track days and just lapping and stuff like that i want to get out and battle somebody that's what i want to do i like the strategy i like the racecraft. i don't care whether i'm racing for 15th or first you obviously prefer to be first but as long as i'm dicing wheel to wheel and occasionally nudging i'm known for that i don't care um, I want to race somebody, and that was really exciting to have that opportunity. Was it, was it um, like in your first couple of races, having someone nudge you? Was that a little bit of a shock? Did you expect that? Yeah, no, that's not a problem. I've, I've done plenty of that. The paddock bashing comes back from that. Yeah, and I've done a lot of go-karting as well, That oh, okay. you know, just rental stuff over the years. Uh, yeah. So, no, the contact... Contact's not the issue. It's the the extra speeds, like the speed of a radical. You you know you do two forty some places, and you've got serious g forces involved. So that was a big step up because I've not raced anything normal, if you like. I've not raced a regular sedan or anything like that. I've, I've gone straight from nothing to a radical, mm. full on. You know they came towards good lap times. So um, the physicality of driving a car like that. Uh, it wasn't a surprise, but it was something that you've got to deal with. I'm not, I'm not unfit, but I'm certainly I'm not a gym junkie either. So that 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 takes some getting used to. Um, but I, I think I, I, I did it all right. I knew what it's all about. I'm not, you know, I'm not I'm not a, I'm not a newbie. Gaz, didn't you ever walk past the the TDK liveried Radical SR3 and it had the wolf in the crosshairs and. Yeah. A lot of damage around the dive planes on that car. I don't think it was too much people getting into Phil, but I think it was a bit of Phil getting into other people there for a bit. I'll compare that. I'm not going to argue that one. <laughs> I've actually got a trophy for it. The Jam Motorsport uh, uh, boss, I'm going to call her the boss, Courtney, she does the trophies. And one year she's actually given me this little mini trophy. She's called it the kissing trophy, but because I, I managed to touch and kiss almost every car on the grid and I've got a trophy to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> bump and run is it yeah, well i didn't do the running i just did the bumping <laughs> so you had you had the fun with the the sr3 and you went yeah now um i'm glad it's later in life i caught the bug to actually race these things and and you're still involved with um you know with the um the gt scene you, you know there's 
some rumours floating around in the background. You, you've got a heavy involvement with some Bentleys with Mike Bailey and that sort of thing. Yeah. But you went, right, I've done the SR3. What's this black SR8 over here? What was that? You know, was that something that accidentally came to you, or did you go looking for that? Yeah, well, no, I went looking. No, obviously, the SR3 was massively sentimentally attached to me because of the Allen connection, and I didn't really want to sell it. But I'm also not just a mechanic, I'm a bit of a wheeler dealer. I buy and sell a few cars once in a while, and, and, and an opportunity came up. I wanted to go faster. The SR3 wasn't fast enough, and I didn't want to develop it because that's. Oh, he really is a race driver now, Gaz, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. It's not fast enough. Yeah. Not fast enough. I want to lower it, more yeah. power. I'd love you to. I'd love you to do that with a Jeremy Clarkson type of accent, if you can, <laughs> if you can summon that up. With more talks. <laughs> so, so the, uh, an SR8 came up available uh, for the right price, and uh, I mean, always about the right price. I'd said to Garth Walden at Radical uh, a while back, I said, "If you ever, I need an SR8, if one comes up at the right price, and this is my right price, let me know, because." Um, uh, I, I want that. And anyway, one did, and I wasn't ready. And I, I had a Lancia road car, and I had my SR3 and a couple of bits. And I didn't, but didn't really want to sell something, but I had to. And so I put both my Lancia uh, up for sale and my Radical. And basically, whichever one sold first, I was going to keep the other. And unfortunately, I suppose in a way, uh, ended up the the Radical sold first. And um, but I'm very glad who it's gone to. Nick Ashwin up in Queensland. He's a legend of a guy. He's got it. And um, that facilitated the purchase of the SR8, which was uh, a massive step and exactly what I needed. And so that's that's been a very exciting journey. Very different car. The identical look at could not be more different. Just an absolute sledgehammer compared to a scalpel. Well, and the other thing, Phil, that you've done with the SR8 is you've taken it away from, let's call it the SR8 radical version. It's now the Hughes Supercar Services uh, radical SR8. And you've done some things of your own to the car to make it better for you and also for the next generation of Hughes race car drivers coming yeah. along as well. I haven't done much. Um, the car was a little bit daggy when I got it, but the price was always going to mean that. And so I dealt with that. I just recently did a bit of a rear wing development on it just to try and get, get shed some drag. Um, but actually the car just needed servicing and fixing and just, just details mostly. And, um, so it's actually still very, very close to standard. The engine certainly is, gearboxes. I've done some very minor tweaks on a few things, but it's, but it would still qualify. If, if a radical SRH should ever be eligible for a series, it wouldn't take much to make it eligible and legit again. Um, but yeah, no, I've really enjoyed just tuning the handling of it without actually investing in any real development and just making it more comfortable and, and predictable to drive because it, it was very sketchy at, at first, but. It was problems with the car when I got it, which took me a while to realise and understand and then work out how to fix and tune around. So that's all done now. The car is now basically the best it'll ever be. So, so given that you've you've got this SR8, you've run around a bit, you ticked off a, another bucket list item just recently at Bathurst. Now, what was the, what, what was the allurement? What did you know about Bathurst before you actually had, got a chance to race there? Well, I mean, Bathurst is no Australian needs to be told. It's just absolutely iconic, isn't it? It's it, it's a holy grail of any bit of, bit of bitumen in Australia. So I've, I've been there so many times over the years. I think the first time was with the Challenge cars back in 2001 or whatever, supporting the supercars. And I remember we had a really horribly rainy, foggy uh, race meeting and 
Uh, a bit like what you had just a couple of weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, kind of. It was actually wor <laughs> just worse. But I remember Christian Jones's car, which I was running, he'd finished the race, but he and then he said, he came on the radio, which is obviously sketchy at Bathurst, and he said, oh, he's gone, oh, smoke, smoke, something smoke, and I couldn't really hear what he's saying, but I said, oh, well, it's just the foggy windows, just see if you can loosen your belts now the race is finished, wipe, wipe the windows, you know, but and it, no, there wasn't, a, the car had an electrical fire inside, and he, he couldn't see where he was going. <laughs> so that was my first introduction to Bathurst, was we actually did finish a race, but the car caught fire at the end of it. Um, so that was welcome to Bathurst for that one. Um, and then, then not long after that, we had the 24-hour races there, the pro car days, and then we had the 360 GTs. And uh, that was just, the prep for that was just a nightmare. And uh, it was just huge. Uh, I can just remember not sleeping, you know, not, not stopping working. For, I think we worked two consecutive day throughs overnight twice. And then we, we got there, though, we turned up, and then we started the race, and... We blew one engine up, changed it, and blew the next one up and were packed up by midnight, I seem to remember. <laughs> That's pretty much it. I happened. think I walked past the pit. It was still daylight when you were putting <laughs> the um, second engine in on the Saturday. Yeah. yeah. The new engine lasted three hours. The wrecked engine that we had to put in as a spare, I think, lasted six hours, something like that. But it still ended in a smoldering pile of wreck at the side of the road. Bill, one of the uh, now you'll have to correct me. I think it was the Tony DeFelice vicious rumors car at one of the the reincarnated twelve hours where it didn't get through qualifying or something was, was absolutely yeah. totaled by another driver. Yeah, so Tony, the, the Tony DeFelice had never even driven at Bathurst in anything ever. Uh, we'd already done one practice session, I think, and we had we had Tony Delberto and Dean Canto driving with us, and they'd done a half session each. I think it was. And then, uh, then there was a red flag. What well, something a Porsche and something had crashed somewhere up the top. Nobody really knew much about it, but there was a red flag while well, they swept up the dead Porsche. Anyway, so Tony got in the car and went and queued up in pit lane. And this is his first ever lap at Bathurst in anything, and it's a near new four five eight GT three. He's sitting there, I think third in line um, at the pit exit, and we're chatting on the radio. He's nervous as hell, like anyone is, because it's Bathurst first time. I just said to him, Tony, just, just chill. It's a red flag. Nobody's going to be doing anything silly. Just go out, drive around. It's an OBS lap. You, you've not even driven out into a live green session. You're coming out. Couldn't be better. You're coming out. No, nobody knows what's out there. There's going to be oil, down, debris, whatever. Just just cruise around. Find the, find your line. So that's what he said. And he said, I'll just follow the guy in front. I think it was I think it was Andrew McPherson, actually. So he wasn't going to blitz himself into the distance, you know. Anyway, so session's gone green. Tony's driven away. And he's just going up, going up the hill, and he got up, up the top. And um, Steve Wyatt in the similar 458 was behind Tony, and he decided he wanted to pass Tony, which is fair enough. He'd done a lot of laps. And Tony saw him coming, no problem. I gave him a bit of room, somewhere near the great this was. And um, Steve Wyatt started to pass Tony. This is Tony's first lap. He's not even done half a lap yet. And just as Steve Wyatt is passing Tony, Dean Fiore in one of the uh, Audis has come whistling past both of them. I don't think Steve White really saw him, but he certainly shouldn't have expected him either. And Dean clipped Steve White's car and broke the steering on that, which made him steer hard right into Tony DeFelice, who then slammed into the wall and just skidded down down into the gravel before around McFillamy Park. And so the poor bloke, there's some brilliant, you look it up on YouTube, there's Tony in the gravel just cursing. It's just one beep after another. It, it's actually very funny now. I can see the funny side of it, but <laughs> certainly didn't at the time. But 
uh, yeah, so Tony's first experience of Bathurst was was 3.1 kilometres in his race car and 3.1 in the medical car. That was it. Yeah, it's a tough, tough thing. So with that sort of stuff in the back of your mind, you're heading out onto I'm going out. Mount Panorama. <laughs> yeah. Well, the first thing I did was send Tony a message to say, my first experience went better than yours, mate. <laughs> if you follow us on Instagram, you'll see there's a bit of banter. We still hang out with each other. He, he's just uh, he's at the Ferrari Club this weekend, I think, doing the show and shine in Sydney. He, I keep teasing him. He's not a racer anymore, but we have a bit of laugh. But no, he, we, we had a lot of good times with, with Tony when he, when he was racing. And um, Actually, you, you made a comment that uh, across the top, you thought the car was quicker than what you were, but you didn't put them in, into that many words yeah oh yeah, yeah that's right you, you you've really got a you, you're, you're just a passenger really the first few times around you, you i don't know you're, you're, you're what you're seeing can't be computed quick enough in your brain to deal with your arrival you know you, you know what to do you've, we've all done it on the sim we've watched the youtube videos of everyone doing it you, I've, I've engineered people and coached people for 20 years doing it but when you're out there doing it yourself it's different. It's different, and it's it's way more real than you realise. So your experience as a driver at Mount Panorama, albeit on a pretty tricky weekend, probably played into your, your ballpark. If there's a an opportunity that the prototypes go back, will you go back? Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, I've got unfinished business now. I, I, I don't, I've always said in the past, and I stand by it. I don't really rate it as a very good racing track i like i like the combat of racing someone and 6.2 kilometers of bitumen should be amazing place to race somebody will will but you can't there's only about three kilometers at bathurst where you can actually race so it's not it's like winton really as a racetrack it's, it's not that flash but as a place to race and test yourself and test your car against the stopwatch it's incredible and yeah now i've got well i want to go back i've set myself a target of a 210 and i didn't achieve it and there's a couple of reasons for that but uh I can fix those reasons and I want to go back and do it. Let's touch on, um, I guess, something else. You, it, it, it's probably by accident, again, I guess, heavy involvement with the administration of the, the prototype series and taking it forward now for at least the last five years. You're, you're on the cold face of that as well. Yeah, I'm one of the stakeholders. There's a couple of directors and then there's now six. We've recently taken in another stakeholder. So there's six stakeholders. And so we get to basically run the category. We're, we're, I think we're still, we're the only category that's really run by the competitors and the drivers, you know. So um, we've got a great little group of people and, it, and we've got the right ideas and the visions and we're just trying to create a sustainable place to race, you know, exciting fast cars that are the, the, the you know, some of the cutting edge technology of the newer stuff, especially. We've got the Wolves, we've got the Nova Protos, we've got the Praga now, we've got some amazing cars coming through and they're just the most interesting cars i love the technology of of all those cars you know they're all fascinating and the, and the radicals they're older technology now but they're still that the engines even the, my, my v8 engine is a jewel of an engine it's just so cool because uh, i'm a bit of a technophobe you know i'm just not just about the racing scene it's what are we racing it's like i love the v8 supercars for example but the cars don't interest me but i love the racing spectacle but what I like about prototypes is the cars are amazing. And people have to be cool too, but the cars are amazing. The um, I know at one stage there they were quite keen to get prototypes, or well, as Australian sports cars, I guess is a better terminology, uh, to run at the Grand Prix. But with the introduction of Formula 2 and Formula 3 down there, I guess that's not going to happen. I think that ship's sailed, isn't it? Yeah, yeah which is unfortunate. Um, there's also that 
talk of bringing back the Australian Sports Car Championship, and these cars would be the ideal car to do it with, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's a lot of chit chat around that, and we've got a strategy to try and make sure it all it all happens the way we think it should. And we've basically been doing it anyway, so we think we're best placed to uh, just take it to that next step. Um, but there's, there's wheels in motion for all of that. So hopefully that will come to fruition and, and keep growing the prototype category. There's a lot of talk about, you know, we want bigger grids and we should merge with Radical and all that. And that's that's just politically difficult. Radical Global need to win races because they're Radical. They, they, anyone makes series, will never merge. There used to be a Ferrari Porsche challenge series, but Ferrari want to win races, Porsche want to win races, so they go <laughs> and run their own race series. So yeah. prototypes and Radical are never going to fully merge, I don't believe. We've, we've got a Radical class and it's very competitive and there's trophies for it. Um, but ultimately, the, some of the other prototypes are faster, so they're going to win the races outright. So something we've just got to learn to live and deal with. Mm. You, you exclaimed you like the technology of the prototypes and, and all the whiz-bangery, but in most recent times, you uh, have been working on a Cooper Climax and uh, with sketchy uh, high tension leads and uh, <laughs> yesteryear spark plugs and a point gap and all of that yeah. sort of thing that you're running with Flavio. How did that come about and, and how is it grabbing your attention? Yeah, well, so the owner, Flavio, is a, is a very, very, very clever man. He's got the most amazing encyclopedic knowledge of historic cars and he owns some very, very cool stuff. There's another special car which will come to Australia next year, which I won't say much about. But he's, I think you know he's got the he's got the Lancia Stratos Group Four, a proper genuine Group Four Stratos, which I'll take care of. And then uh, he had a bug to do something else, and uh, as well, so he he found this coupe. It was just a, it was at one of the uh, auctions, Shannon's auctions, I think it was. And he, he just outbid the next guy because he saw the value in it, and uh, bought the car. And yeah, he's, we've put all the all the bits and pieces together we've got all the paperwork in order it's just got its htp papers literally a couple of weeks ago just just before the sandown recent meeting it's all htp papered now and certified so it's eligible for the global uh, events you know monaco spa goodwood all of those we can go and do all that um and it's just a joy to work on it's simple it's small it's light it's easy fits in the trailer with room around it and it's just, it's just a breath of fresh air it's like a day off almost it might enlighten us a little bit on the history of that car so that uh, listeners will be aware of what we're talking about. Yeah, so it's a it's a 1960 Cooper T53 and it was uh, it was it was owned by Jack Brabham. It wasn't one of his famous race cars though. He did it, I think he did a race or two in it. But it's the car that uh, he sold to Lex Davison after Lex crashed into the Longford pub. And so Lex has got a great history with that car. Um, he did loads of stuff with it, and uh, I'm not sure how long he owned it for, but it was many years. And then it's it, it's been it's, it's a bit of a grandfather's axe of a car, you know. Any race car back in the day, it did this, it did that. It got converted into a sports car at one point with a with closed wheel bodywork, and it's been converted back. Um, uh, but it's to say it's all got its its ID and plates and paperwork in order now, and it's a it's a very collectible thing. Flavio's Flavio's done all the research and work, and he, he's really really made a good investment out of buying that car. Terrific stuff to see that car on track as well. And he, he eventually by the end of the weekend at Sandown, he really started to throw it around like those cars need to be, like move around the track on the tiny little bike tires that it runs and and all that sort of thing. So he really did start to use what the car can do. He, and it's he drives be it really... like he means it. He's not, yeah. scared of, he's not scared of driving it hard. He hasn't, he's exactly never scratched right. it that I'm aware of, but uh, he, he drives it hard and makes it move around, yeah. Yeah. Now, 
Something we ask all of our race drivers, and you've only just recently qualified to that. I've said that more than once uh, tonight. Who's been you, your favourite uh, protagonist to race against? And you don't have to ask answer part B because no one ever does. Who's the one you don't like racing against? <laughs> Who do I like racing against? Well, look, I love my prototype series. That, that We just have an absolute hoop. And um, all the guys at the front, you've got, you've got JP, who was the class clown, you know, and then there's Matt Chris and Ryan Godfrey's new on the scene and he's awesome to race with. And uh, Lauke is just inspirational what the stuff that Mark Lauke can do at his age he's a septuagenarian let's say and he can still drive like he stole it um two, uh, like, two times series champion as well yeah that's right yeah and he, he's an engineer he's a scientist he's a chemist he's, he is a brilliant man and he's awesome and he did some very nice things for me um all of the prototype guys. There's not a bad person in the prototype series. There was we had briefly. We called him Speedy Gonzalez. Well, Daniel Gonzalez. He had the white wolf for a while. And he was a bit of a loose unit, and he's still around doing good things. He could drive, no doubt about it. But he, he had tunnel vision, and so and some late braking too. <laughs> well, just absent braking. We'll ask David Barham about that. <laughs> so he he was the one. I don't like getting my car properly damaged. I don't mind bumps and bruises. I don't mind a bit of cracked fiberglass, but I don't like getting wheels punched off and broken arms and things like that. And he was a bit like that. I, so I felt vulnerable when I was near Daniel. Um, and that my body made me slower when I was around him. But that, that didn't happen often. There's only two or three races where we got near each other. Uh, I love I loved my first race win. I was so satisfied to beat Peter Patton. He, he's like a, he was a radical <laughs> benchmark. He's a champion. And he's then, got a few wins to catch up to his record as well, haven't he? That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it was a long way off. So it was nice to do that. And then I had a bit of a laugh when I bought my SR8. I went to Sydney with it and I needed some wet tyres. And I managed to, I basically, I did pay some money for it. So I didn't quite drag them out the bin. But Peter was disposing of some old discarding, discarded wets. And so I bought them for pocket change, put them on my car. And I would have bloody beaten him on him if it wasn't for Lauke spinning me around. <laughs> so, I've only just thrown those wets away now. They've had them three years. <laughs> there's, a, there's a part two because you're the, the first guy we've had on the Napa Auto Parts podcast that has had a career as a mechanic and engineer and as a race driver as a mechanic and an engineer who was your engineering a driver who was your favorite one to have that driver go up against oh what do you mean who, who I worked for which driver which which of my drivers if you like well you're working for Christian Jones who did you like to see Christian Jones go up against and race oh, okay, right, I see yeah. well the, the, the Jones and Noski rivalry was well, rivalry was great Mark Mark typically got the upper hand but Christian did some amazing things with a car that didn't quite have the same stuff on it a lot of the time so Christian really needs to be credited a lot more than what he what he actually did get um so that was very satisfying and then um uh when Cam drove the car for Tom Warwick a while as well, Cam McConville, he was amazing to work with. I remember him telling me a stat at the Grand Prix because he was driving the V8 supercars back then. And he said, he said, I'm, I'm braking 120 metres later in the Ferrari than I am in the V8 supercar. There's a lot, <laughs> doesn't it? Not braking. <laughs> no, <laughs> and similar lap times. <laughs> so it's a little bit slower, but not much. But yeah. it was over 100 metres was he was breaking later, and that was a stat that blew me around. And I got to drive a lap of the Grand Prix in that because we he got on a podium and I had to drive the car all the way back. I remember the crowd cheering and I gave it a bit of a skid. That was fun. That was probably a that was probably a little taste of race driving that I got back then. That I thought well, I like that. Um, well, that's a good stat to have in yeah. your um, in your resume is that you drove around the Grand Prix track. 
There yeah, won't be too many guys in the prototype series well, that are Grand Prix. One that was equally as fun was when we used to race up at the Gold Coast back in the days when you could be a mechanic and run around in the track in the ute and everything. And I, I did a few laps uh, in the in the Ferraris at the end of the races there as well. We were driving around the Gold Coast when when the girls were allowed to be out topless on the balconies. <laughs> that was the good old days. Yeah, they were the days. <laughs> some of the some of the best fun was putting the door up on the Diablo and having that, and and yeah. sort of sliding your way in. And uh, we've just done well in the Black Diablo. We've just we've just written uh, history books here. We've beaten one of Phil Hughes' Michelottos again. <laughs> yeah, well, the Ferrari was always underpowered. It did the it did the business, but it was never never had the horses. Um, well, the, whereas the Lambo was the opposite. It had yeah. horsepower. It never did anything much else. <laughs> it was always a difficult thing for whoever got behind the wheel. But I well, love to work with a lot of drivers. Um, you know, I loved all watching them work with the car. Um, Bairdo was Bairdo was an is an animal that he could extract every ounce of speed out of that car. I remember it must be when was it fifteen years ago more. He, he did a he did a one eleven at Sandown in three sixty GT, which is it's impossible. It can't be done, but he did it, and he just had that thing absolutely hooked up. And he, he found a way of dealing with the F1, the paddle shift. He, he worked out, you didn't have to flick every gear. You could just pull the paddle and hold it. And if you release the paddle at the right time, it would go straight to the right gear. <laughs> he, he just had this knack of wringing every ounce of speed out of a, a car um, to the ragged edge. Like it would destroy tires and brakes, but he would get that lap time and do that race. And um, JB, Bowie, he was a right old legend. He, we still chat regularly. He he probably taught me the most as a mechanic. Uh, he never drove the same car twice. He, every time he was in the Ferraris, we would change something. It would be, you know, a spring, a shock, a bar, a wing, rake, right height, all the stuff you could do, wheel alignments. It would, it would, he would constantly search the car for what it could do. And it was frustrating at times. I remember one time we'd worked all bloody night at the, at the Laverton factory we were at the time. We were, we were all over it. It was gone midnight. We want to go home. And then he's been on the blower. I want to put these spring platforms under the and on the on the springs. I want the little needle roller bearings under the springs to save a bit of friction. And I'll, I'll just put the car on the patch and ready to go in the truck. No, nope, we've got to take all the springs and shocks out again. Put these bloody needle rollers in another two hours. Uh, but you know what? The data proved that he was right. It worked. So the next day you go, got to pay him. You got to pay the man. That's what he's here for. He's tuning the car. He's making it better. We're all learning and we're doing better for having them around. So you have to credit these guys for what they can do. Phil, um, putting all of that aside now, and I, and I don't want to draw up too many emotions again here, but there is another generation of Hughes race car driving coming along. There has been some trips to Winton and there's also been an SR8 driven through the middle of Bathurst with the <laughs> next generation race driver. How is that feeling having, you know, go to the track, father and son operation? How does that yeah, that's that's life goal stuff, isn't it? You know, I'm I'm, I'm very lucky. I've, I've got four kids, three three boys. Thomas is my oldest, and he's just turned 19, just literally the week of Bathurst, and so he's now of age. He's at uni doing Mechinge, and uh, he's coming on great. He's a bit of a car nerd. He loves. He's got a little Peugeot hot hatchback, and um, excuse me. He's 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 now he's he's not just my son anymore he's now a, a friend a mechanic an engineer he's genuinely productive and helpful around the race meeting at Bathurst recently I had a bloody problem again with the fuel pump and it's inside the fuel tank and we've done it a couple of times now we've got a bit of a system 
and we worked together like a well-oiled machine to whip the fuel tank out, change the fuel pump, get it all back in in record time, and we high-fived at the end. It was just awesome. You know, and we can do these fixes now. And we, we've got a, a level of communication that's different. Now. We're not just father-son. We, we've got this real, real good close bond because of the car racing. It's awesome. It is pretty cool. Phil, um, this is we could go on and on. This has been uh, – we're now out, well out past our allocation of – of time here and i would like to really genuinely send down the line to you a massive thanks for the stories and and the fun and i guess the what a what an audio podcast doesn't bring is the smile on the three blokes faces as as we're telling you know you're telling these stories now thank you i appreciate you guys have always had my back and uh, for years now it's always enjoyable listening to your special comments that's how you're in my saved in my phone as special comments when you're in the phone <laughs> yeah, yeah special comments and I appreciate I'll, I'll leave the I'll, sc thing to whatever the yeah. uh, interpretation might be <laughs> yeah. yeah no I, I do really appreciate the people that have been around and supported us uh, for years it's been been a quite a journey well Phil Hughes thank you so much for being part of the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing podcast with uh, with Daz and Gaz yeah, yeah thanks thank a lot. You. Thanks, Phil. Very much appreciated. Thanks, Gaz. Anytime. We'll have a beer again, eh? Oh, indeed. Oh, yeah. You need to invite him to that. <laughs> he turned up just as I was shouting, so I think you got you know what's what. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Cheers, boys. Good night. Great to catch up with Phil Hughes. I tell you what, well-traveled journeyman and um, great to see his family have made a great home in uh, in Australia and uh, certainly those those big beasts, the Bentleys, they might not, might not be Ferraris and they might not be V12 Ferraris, but I tell you what, if you're an Englishman and uh, if you get a chance to check out the media, the, the uniforms that they had those guys dressed in and even their driving suits were very novel and, <laughs> uh, and they really did put on a great show. So we thank Phil for uh, his time. And uh, we literally did drag him uh, away from prepping those cars for the event. So uh, big thanks to Phil. As I said at the top of the show, Gaz, plenty, plenty going on. And I've been promising for a few weeks to give a uh, a wrap-up of the Victorian State Circuit Racing Championships. And uh, here we go with all of the categories. Formula Ford, uh, Matthew Hillier took the title in his Miguel for four, nine points there. Jordan Sinney. Again, the bridesmaid there, Jordan, in his Spectrum 014, 386 points. Matty Holmes in the Spectrum 015 in third place there. Formula Ford 1600, or for the older Kent engine cars. Richard Davison took the Van Diemen RF95 that both his boys won championships in as well over Brendan Jones by 20 points. Now, Brendan Jones has broken a, a long record in his spectrum, won many, many championships. And great to see Phil Marinon in the old Galloway on 342 points, finally getting a third place in the championship. So well done, Phil. Terrific uh, to see uh, to see him out there running. Formula B, Heath Collinson won in the Sabre 02. Tarif McCarthy in his Sabre 02, 425 to 419 points. So very, very close and hotly contested. And Andre Curran in another Sabre 02 on 286 points. So a fairly distant third there in uh, in the Formula Vs. Historic Touring Cars, a fantastic championship win to Darren Collins. Very, very close in the end to Peter Muleman, the uh, Camaro driver, Darren Collins on 226 to 222 for Muleman. And Trevor Talbot in the Camaro back on 184. HQ Holden's Andy McLeod took a win there on 266. Just 
just over Andrew Majulton, as Dave Amor would have us say. And uh, Majulton getting second in the championship on 332. Harry Tompkins, uh, sorry, that's the XLs. Then Perry Beckers, great to see Perry Beckers on 249 also there. So that was a really close championship, 266 to 244 points there. Hugo Simpson won the XLs on 454. No, not a big block, just 454 points. Ethan Griggolt on 332 and Harry Tompkins on 278 for the XLs. The Improved Production uh, Championship eventually went to Jared Tonks in the Holden Commodore on 409, held off Adam Poole in the Holden Monaro on 390, and Luke Gretsch Gumbo came home in third place. It'd be interesting to see if Luke can actually close back up on those guys. Uh, they have absolutely sprinted away at the front improved production. MG and invited British cars. Now these this category put on a massive year, in fact a massive two seasons. And Michael Trafton came home in the MG midget on 226 points on uh, the next car in the race, number 40, Keith Ondachi and the Triumph Stag. Yes, it's a stag. And we love the stag. 206 points just beating home Gary Bulmer in the MGB as they celebrated 60 years of MGBs on the road and on the racetrack with 205. Porsche 944s, Jamie Westaway won the championship over Cameron Bella for two years in a row. Cameron Bella's got some work to do for so long. He was the man to catch. Now Jamie has just got that cold tyre working beautifully on the 944. Adam Brewer came home in third place. Saloon cars saw Sean Jamison, the interloper, coming over from uh, SA, taking the championship and did it very easily too. 468 points over Angels Lancini on 348 and Daniel Johnson, the first Ford home in the championship, doing a tremendous job waving the uh, FOMO Co flag on 332 points. Ben Schutz in the SIN R1550, 500 points, did not lose a race. Clean swept the entire season over Andrew Hall and Jamie Lovett. Now, these two, Andrew Hall, both in, uh, in the 991 Series 1 GT3 Cup car on 393 points. Jamie Lovett in the 9972 GT3 Cup car on 392 points. One point between them. It was a great series. Johnny Polito won the sports sedans in the HSB Club Sport on 302 points to... Sorry, this has changed. This has actually changed since Highland Magic. So I will uh, retract that. It was Tony Groves that actually won the championship in the Mornington Mazda Mark Mazda 3. And uh, I'll have to uh, clarify the rest of that championship as we go through these results. The BMW E30s, Alex Jory had a terrific year on 455, taking the title over Jeff Bowles and Simon Schiff in the E30s, Gaz. So that's how the Victorian championships played out. Well, we'll try and get some of the other states, but perhaps by our next podcast, we can uh, nail down the rest of the states about who ended up winning what. But in the meantime, uh, the HSRCA ran their summer festival at Sydney Motorsport Park last weekend. Big fools in just about every category. Formula Vs, uh, these are for the older Formula Vs. Uh, 1200s, obviously, being the capacity. And Tony Painter won three of the races. David Cutts took out the other. And for most of them, there was nothing between them. Matt Pierce was also involved. And in the last race, there was three-tenths of a second between the top three after eight laps. Group S, of course, he ran an enduro race. There was the option to run two drivers. So... Uh, they were a, it was a 40-minute race. Wayne Seabrook, pretty much as you expect in his uh, Porsche 911 Carrera, dominated. He won uh, quite easily ahead of the two 
Simon, uh, sorry, get ahead of the two Maya brothers, Simon and Damien, in their mighty MG midgets. They seem to perform well above uh, where they should be. And uh, fourth and fifth went to Porsches with David Canine and Doug Barber. LMAM and O Sports and Racing, Laurie Bennett won all three races there. The Dawson Damer race, the, the trophy race, which is for this category because uh, John Dawson Damer raced in it. Uh, years before he unfortunately passed away in an accident at uh, Goodwood. Uh, Laurie Bennett won that race ahead of David Kent and Noel Bryan. Group N and invited. Now, they hadn't invited Mustang, so I'm not sure a, a lot about this car, but it says its uh, capacity was 6.3 litre. So I don't know where that came from or what it was, but in the first race, Chris Thomas won in his Holden Tirana X1 ahead of Ian Mellett. In the second race... Um, it was uh, Thomas again. I oh, know Thomas uh, got a, yeah, he got a 30 second penalty. He, he was right up there. So the win went to Gavin King in this Mustang I was talking about. Peter O'Brien was second in a XY Falcon GT and Graham Russell in the midi was in third spot. And in the final race, it was Chris Thomas from Peter O'Brien, Michael Rose in third. His car, of course, looked after Brad Tilly's group. They uh, look after quite a few cars that race at Historics. Sports today and Super Sprints were on again, and you'd love this category uh, because uh, they are cars that we know, Group U uh, predominantly. Uh, Steve Lacey was uh, was invited into this category for the weekend, and he was quickest in the first ahead of Kerry McMahon in the Chev Monza, the ex-Wind uh, Cup car, and Jason Macros was third in the Chrysler Charge. That's the ex-Clem Smith car, of course. And they ran the same way for the next two Did you two say Jason, Jason Macris was in the Clem Smith car? Maris, you? sorry. Oh, Maris. Okay, sorry. Yep. Not Jason Macris. As no, no, no. Uh, yeah, sorry. My blue. No, uh, he was actually faster than the last, but the other two didn't start. Formula Fords, Cameron Walters, not to be confused with Cameron Waters. Yep. Uh, he's the son of Jeff Waters, Walters, actually, who raced Formula Ford back in the 80s and 90s. Very successfully. Yeah. Uh, he won three of the races and Bruce Connolly won the other. And in Formula 5000 and QR Sports and Racing, Tom Tweedy uh, was pretty much dominant. He won all four races. Chris Farrell got a second in the first race. Paul Zarin then um, was second in the other. So Farrell was, of course, in a Rolt RT2. So uh, Tweedy, uh, Tweedy in the Chevron or in the MS7? Yep. Uh, Chevron B24. Chevron. Yeah, okay. But he ate it, has a later nose cone on it. Yes. Yep. got that slash. So there must be two of those Chevrons running around because there was one down at the historic Sandown. Yeah, Dean Cam. Yep. Our old mate from the Corvette and uh, Carrick Sports and Ants. Yeah. Okay, well, that's it for for the Sydney Motorsport uh, Historic. Uh, of course, they've been restricted somewhat now with no Wakefield Park and normally have four meetings a year, two at Sydney and two at Goulburn, and until that's resolved. Uh, still, we're not hearing a lot about what's happening with that uh a petition that went to Parliament has been deferred the next year. That's a shame. I tell you what, the the Velo Five Hundred is uh, what can be done successfully when you got politics uh, on your side. But Wakefield Park's what happens when you have come on, come on, voters. Exactly, exactly. A circuit back on up and going. So over talking, to you for the next slot. Talking about voting, uh, Island Magic was held at the same day. Uh, just about every time there's a state election, it's held on the same day as Island Magic on the Saturday. So had to get the postal votes in. It's a great weekend and a really fitting um, nearly end to the 70th anniversary of the Phillip Island Auto Racing Club or PIAC towards friends. Really good weekend. 
Um, the inclusion of the Porsche Michelin Sprint Challenge really brought the uh, event to life because it, it eventually got fully live streamed the whole uh, the whole event and uh, really did turn it on by uh, the locals down there. Ryan Wood had two um, races win, wins in the Porsche Michelin Sprint Challenge over Thomas Sargent, who had two second places, and Aaron Shields also on the podium there. But Thomas Sargent took the chocolates at the end of the year. Great old buddy from the racetrack, Danny Studdett, returned to, to Porsche Racing this year, and he won the Pro-Am with two wins um, from the from the weekend. There should have been three races, but the middle race on the on Saturday was uh, was called off after a couple of accidents and uh, had couldn't continue with that race. And Class B, a uh, Victorian sports car racer, Jacob Lee, had two wins as well. So uh, really popular in the Pro-Am and Class B, uh, being sort of local local guys there on the podium, although Danny Studdett's uh, name now has Queensland next to it, but so many years racing in Victoria. We'll, we'll take him for this one. Uh, Formula B, Reef McCarthy in his Sabre 02 and John Casmati shared wins over the weekend. Ash Clifford in his Sabre and Andre Curran in the Sabre for second and thirds there. And a special mention to Nick Jones in the Jaser 98. A great return to the front end of the field and uh, testament to uh, that, that tiny little team of Nick and his dad that get out there and go Formula B racing. Historic touring cars. And uh, I'll take a little bit of um, a little bit of uh, edit license here, Gaz. Really good call by Darren Knight. It was great to be calling races again at, at Historic Sandown and uh, Phillip Island with the Historic Touring Cars with Darren Knight. He does a, a ripping job. Paul Stubber, the uh, Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing very own Paul Stubber took a win. <laughs> uh, as did Aldepaldo over the Paoli over the weekend in the Camaros and Trevor Talbot also in the Camaro. And again, I'll take a little bit of editorial here as well. Special mention to Grassroots Racing very own uh, podcast. Darren Hossack uh, got a couple of P3s and a P4 over the weekend in the RX2. And I tell you what, if they're, if Paul Stubber wheels a Camaro, let me tell you, <laughs> Darren Hossack takes more than a wheel to uh, to that RX2. He really does uh, give it absolutely everything. Well, Super he has exciting to, to watch. He hasn't got the power that the other... No, in a straight line, it just gets blown away. But XLs, Toby Waghorn, Hugo Simpson and James Lodge got themselves on the podium in the final. The Formula Ford Cool Drive Cows Cup was won by Matt Hillier for Sonic, Leo Scott in the Spectrum and Edison Bezik in uh, his Spectrum as well. Uh, Improved production for the very traditional Matthew Flinders plate brought to us by Traction Tyres. Adam Poole in the Monaro one, signing off a uh, pretty good year. Jared Tonks into P2. And the returning improved production racer of uh, Ben Schutz after winning the sports car title in the Sin. Ben got back on the podium. It's been a long time since the Matthew Flinders plate was won by an RX-7. It was dominated for 15 years by RX-7s and good to see Ben back in the uh, in that spot. 50K plate for the Ramada Resort was actually over 12 laps. It was actually 50K, not not 10 laps and some of it, whatever that adds up to, um, was actually over 50Ks. The Ramada Resort and QP Lube supported that. Tony Groves, the state champion, won it in the Mornington Mazda 3. Michael Robinson in the Bell Real Estate, Poltec, Monaro, a national category uh, competitor in second place and Stewie Eustace in uh, in the white Mark Mazda in there as well. Porsche 944s, James Westaway race, uh, won the race, the main race for the weekend. I think it was the Endeavour Cup was the traditional name for it by eight seconds. And I think that's that's probably the biggest margin between James Westaway and Cameron Bella for two seasons of racing now. And third was Adam Brewer. The Formula Open, which was a new 
um, class being brought on to the scene and got to say, round of applause to everyone involved. Tim Macro being, I guess, the front man there. Um, the the club, the you know, the promoter putting that event on. 28 cars fronted up. Um, unfortunately, race three was missed, but the two races we did get, you know, race three due to weather, um, Trent Grubel in the Miguel F3 took the two race wins. Noah Sands, Ethan Brown, and uh, a great second place to longtime radical competitor Mitch Nielsen in race number two as well. So a really, really good category. Keep your eye open for uh, Formula Open Australia. And um, big plans, really I believe. Sorry, oh, there's big plans for Formula Open. Oh, look, it's 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 such a great place. There's so many of those cars, guys, that are just sort of orphaned in the. Uh, the Australian motorsport landscape and, you know, Formula Toyota's Tommy Smith drove brilliantly in his Formula FT50. And, you know, there's a couple of Formula Holdens in the, in the, well, no, sorry, not the Formula Holdens, is... not the Formula Holdens, but they're, they're yep. supposed to be under two litres. Yeah, it's going to be basically anything under two litre, uh, Formula 4, Formula 3, Formula 2, Formula Toyota, uh, Formula Renault, Formula BMW. Yep, yep. And, uh, and they're, they're, they're around, cool. they're around. They go to sprint meetings. You see them testing at sprint meetings, so they're there. And, of course, um, must mention that Tim Macro had his last race last weekend as well, hung up the driving boots, but um, will run run teams in both Formula 3 and in uh, Formula S5000, so that's good. I can't can't believe it that that that's happened. Um, Grassroots, you know, Napa Auto Parts, Grassroots Racing, very own Tim Macro. you know, I think we will see him have some cameos in some GT cars and things like that from time to time. But yes, he's he's pu- pulled the pin on a on a full time career. And um, the racetalk.com.au did a, a fantastic story on Tim's career and not so much an expose, but just a journey through what Tim did, won, you know, et cetera, et cetera, in 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 the world of motorsports. So a, a great tribute there as well um still going on with uh, events over the last week the 100th anniversary of the alpine rally over four days nathan quinn and ray winwood smith won in their rx2 and uh, a really telling four-day rally like those historic cars datsun 1600s and all these sorts of you know 180bs and all these different bits and pieces fiat abarths and all those sort of things they get through those four days it's a, a a massive win to nathan and the other bit of news just left of field was Tim Schenken inducted into the Supercars Hall of Fame on the weekend there as well. So, uh, along with um, Craig Lount, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, fantastic to see um, to see that Tim's had a long and storied career as a driver and administrator and race director, etc. But um, good to see. Certainly is. Well, getting back to a little bit of racing, uh, the Ken Lee HQ four hour was on at Winton last weekend. Race two hours Saturday, park the cars and then get back in on Sunday to do the following two hours. So it ends up being 24 and a half hours or thereabouts <laughs> racing <laughs> for race distance. I'm surprised Actually, the HQs haven't uh, built it as that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they should do. Um, 128 laps, Brett Osborne and John Baxter were the winners. They won the race by around about 25 seconds over Darren Jenkins and Daryl Crouch. Uh, Ryan and Brendan Woods were two laps behind in third spot and Andrew McLeod and Rod Rogers finished in fourth spot and they were just uh, two seconds off third. So 
pretty close. The only other category at that meeting were the Super, Mini, Super Mini Challenge cars. Craig Linsell won three races. Neil Turner won the other, so they went pretty well head-to-head. In other racing, uh, Lakeside Park had their last grassroots racing series for 2022, round six, or actually it was round, it's the fifth round because one was washed out with floods. Uh, a few categories, I picked out a couple of, that had highlights, the Super Minis up there, James Campbell, uh, he won three races, and then Greg Chesterfield won the last two, they had five races. Shane Pollell was unbeaten in his UNOS roaster in production sports. Uh, the last race was canned because of rain. They didn't even bother going out. Chris Batista and Tyron Gaudia were equal second because they had two seconds each in their Master RX uh, MX-5s. And Outlaws and BMWs, interesting category. Tony Saint in his Master RX-7 V8 in the Outlaws category, he um, he was dominant. He won the first two races, but had a little bit of a power steer leak. And uh, so he had to... Uh, mixed the third, third race while they fixed it. He went out from the back of the field, won the fourth, and then it got too slippery in the last room to go out. But uh, I had to give him a shout out because he's a listener. He's a fan. That's right. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's what happens. Let us let us know. Jump on our uh, Facebook page and let us know you're listening. Mm-hmm. To see what happens. You get a big shout out from the uh, the one and only Gary O'Brien. Uh, and um, Challenge Bathurst was the other thing. Of course, we were reporting from there for our last podcast, but the fastest car... There on the weekend was the Radical SR10 steered by Garnet Patterson. He did a very low two minutes four um, and um, showed the way, basically. There were some other quick cars there, but no one was going to go unrestricted or anything like they did a couple of years ago. There was no point because there's no recognition for a, a, a fastest ever lap because they changed the rules. Gaz, you, you went to Adelaide quickly. Um, I spoke to uh, Matt Nolte earlier today and the, the vibe, obviously, with the returning to the, the streets of Adelaide, just absolutely massive. Oh, for sure. It was so well received by everyone there. The punters were great uh, getting around. They had plenty to do. If you didn't, if, I mean, if you didn't like car racing and got dragged along, you weren't going to be bored because there was so much other activity going on. Of course, the categories were were fully on. The races were good. We had Aussie racing cars there where uh, Joel Heinrich won three races and finished second in the race where he started 10th. So he dominated as far as that, that category went ahead of um, Cody Garland and uh, third place went to, it's just, I've just lost that. I did have you, it there. You can't, you can't, replace a city that like Adelaide that absolutely embraces a car race can you the, the the whole thing just comes to life and you know the other categories there touring car masters uh Ryan Hansford wrapped up the uh touring car masters championship as well as taking out the pro master and it was lucky he, he had an engine go in the last race because if it happened before then it would have been a bit of a tense situation there's a spectacular um failure too wasn't it uh, yeah, filled, um, filled the pit lane with coolant yeah, well, yeah, apparently it dropped the cylinder and then got hot when it got in the pits. <laughs> um, but uh, Stevie J won the race, of course, in the Russell Hancock, uh, Hancock sorry, um, Ford Mustang. He's won now won the last six races in that car. And you know, given that we've had a couple of trophy races, which only account for starting and finishing points. So he did a great job. Yasser Shahin uh, managed to secure the... Uh, 
GT championship, sprint championship for the year with uh, some solid results. Had some pretty handy co-drivers to help him along the way. Yeah, Garth Tanner and Christopher Mees here uh, sling them in and you're pretty serious about your assault, aren't you? It's it's great to see and um, fantastic. I guess the, the, with the Velo 500 now over, we look to the, the calendar for the rest of the year, really sort of scratching now. Everyone's sort of like, well, it's holidays time. It's probably time to get the sprint cars and the drag cars out and do the other the other genres of uh, of motorsport. The the 70th anniversary of Pyre continues or finishes this weekend with the BMW E30 racing and combined sedans down at uh, Phillip Island. Uh, the Carnacross Summer Series down at Tasmania, round two at Baskerville is pretty much all I could scratch out for this weekend. Um, yeah, former SAE at Winton. Uh, that's an interesting exercise. It's been live streamed, so that might be worth having a gander at some stage. Uh, also running out at Phillip Island will be the final round of the National RX-8 Cup. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Mm. Napa Auto Parts, grassroots, very own Rick Shaw uh, <laughs> running at that one as well. We won't be able to get them all in after. Yeah, well, we've got a, we've got a, we've got a few uh, <laughs> few high place guests on here, haven't we? Yeah, indeed we have. Hey, Gaz, and, um, I reckon uh, I reckon that's it for episode number fourteen. Yeah, you got no, anything we've else? Covered a fair bit of ground. No, oh, how can we have? And uh, not not to mention the fact we had Phil Hughes in the mix there as well. And I guess that means uh, from uh, from you, Gaz, and from me, Daz. Until next time, uh, we do the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast for episode 15, contract renewals allowing. And uh, <laughs> you're putting your hand in your pocket again, haven't you? <laughs> uh, on that note, good night from me. And it's good night from him. Thank you very much. You've just listened to another Network Car production. 